You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And the other guy was yelling, fire, fire, your stuff, fire, fire. And now the guy in the white t-shirt is gone. I don't see him anymore. He probably went inside that house. I can't fight off a whole neighborhood. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory will discuss her stories and answer your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor here at The Times. This week, we're going to talk about The House on the Corner. That's one of Lane's most recent stories. She's never done a story quite like this one. So, Lane, let's talk about this. How did it start? What were you thinking? What were you originally going to tell? Um, so, one of our coworkers here at The Times lives across the street from a guy who's a private investigator. And he's basically outside with his dog saying, oh my God, I'm working on this really interesting case. And she has the wherewithal to say, wow, that would make a really interesting story. Do you mind if I tell my friend Lane? So, initially the story was um, a private investigator who had been hired by an attorney to defend a man who had shot his neighbor 17 times. and. It was on video on a convenience store. And after he shot every single bullet in his gun, he kicks the guy in the head and cusses him out. And it's all on video. So the story initially was going to be called Defending Mr. Roy. Like, how does the private investigator and the defense attorney defend this man who clearly has been videotaped <laughs> committing a very violent murder? Um, but as the case kind of went on and the private investigator didn't really have that big of a role in it that we thought of, um, and we started interviewing more of the people involved, we were like, no, this is really a story about the husband and wife who lived in this little house on the corner and what happened to them. It's it's not about the lawyer or the private investigator. It's about their story. So again, you can find the story on tampabay.com um, and look for the house on the corner. Uh, so you originally wrote it, though, you, you you tried a traditional approach to the top of the story, right? And you didn't like it. Why? Well, the story, just because the nature of the story, we came to it after the murder. The dead guy couldn't talk. No one in the neighborhood liked the dead guy or wanted to talk about the dead guy. Even the dead guy's mom didn't really know anything about him. So it felt really one-sided. It didn't feel like balance, like you can tell the good guy, bad guy, or the, the defendant and the, you know, the the victim you you couldn't write it like that because it was all from one pretty much from one viewpoint from the perspective of the murderer so i'd never done a story like that either like how do you make the murderer you're sympathetic enough as a character to get people to care and um 
the di- we had so much dialogue. We had every interview we had recorded with audio and video. We had police depositions. We had jail interviews. We had the night of the shooting 911 calls. We had the cop basically taking him into the the holding room and being like, dude, what just happened? So like an hour after the murder, the guy basically spilling his whole story. And the dialogue was so um, authentic and impassioned, both from Mr. Roy, his mother, his wife, the the other guys that were hanging out in the yard, that the more I started listening to it, you know, I was taking notes, like I normally take notes, but I, I was thinking, this dialogue is really, really more powerful than a lot of anything I've reported before, and I could tell this whole story in dialogue. So my first thought was, it should be a play. It could just be the characters in the play, you know, setting their, set a little scene and then let the characters in the play have it unfold. So I wrote it as like a five-act play um and uh, some people didn't think that worked that that format itself was very uh, demeaning to the subject matter that we were making light or art out of uh, one man's murder and another man facing life in prison so we kind of shelved it and shopped it around and talked about it and and it evolved into what it looks more like now which is is dialogue and kind of interspersed with a little bit of, of writing um the only writing I didn't really was scene setting in it, and the rest is all just transcribed and edited from all the different interviews that we had. So read read the top of the story for folks. Sort of this is the, so this is the setup. This is how Lane got you into it, and as and as she's saying, the, the rest of the story, a, a great chunk of it is is really told in dialogue, and the characters get to speak for themselves. But so this is Lane's setup to the story. When the couple retired to Clearwater four years ago, they moved into a little house on a big corner lot, across from a stop and shop, next to a police substation. The two-bedroom home was supposed to be their slice of the Florida dream. But soon, Anthony James Roy and his wife, Irene Quarles, started seeing people hanging out in their yard, drinking and smoking weed. Strangers plugged their phones into outlets on the couple's patio. They sat on their outdoor furniture, selling drugs. The couple tried to make them leave. They complained to the police. When that didn't work, they tried to build friendships, hoping they could charm the squatters into respecting their property. Sometimes they hid in their house. For three years, the tension built, until one sweltering summer night in 2016. The events are captured in police reports, videos, depositions, evidence files, and interviews. The story is recounted here in their own words. Roy doesn't deny shooting another man 17 times. He just wants to explain why. So, I, you know, I think it's what's cool about this story is that you, you know, you let it take another form. And so often, I think, you know, people sort of feel like they have to do it in a, in sort of a templated fashion or something. And we don't sort of do the old story form thing very often, um, even now, which seems crazy. But um, so you walk away. Do you feel? I mean, are you, I know you had sort of the play in your head, and you kind of had this like August Wilson feel in um do you feel like it this though accomplished i mean it still was sort of true to what you were feeling that it was better in their words yeah i definitely feel like that like also part of it was the reporting you know we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast but i couldn't report the scenes as they happened because we weren't there everything had happened in the past so the only thing i could do was recreate through evidence files and interviews and so that i think made the words even more important you know um and what we were following was basically, how did this happen? But, you know, what could have been done differently was, was really not answered, you know. 
did you tell them you were going to do it this way? I mean, did they, do the people that you wrote about know that this was the way it was going to come out? I told them before I started writing, but I didn't know what I was going to do until we finished most of the reporting um, and started going back through. Like, we had, we had, for the first time ever, we had transcribed all of the interviews. So I had written, usually, like, I take notes and then the photographer records it and then they have their recording to put on their video, but I don't use that as part of my reporting. But this time we had every single interview transcribed. So being able to see it all typed out, too, really made a difference when I sat down to write. I was like, oh, I can do this, you know, because I don't write down everything everybody says, but the transcript had everything everybody said, you know, so I could go back and splice the quotes um, together much more easily. Um, and yeah, I, I just felt like they should have the say in this story. I mean, one of the things we talked about is like, you know, if this gets, if there's a plea bargain and, you know, nobody, it, and there and there still might be, we don't know what's going to happen here. We don't know if it'll go to trial, even though uh, Anthony Roy, who's the, the main character here, his lawyer wants to, wants to try to take it to trial. But if it doesn't go to trial, the story never gets told. You know, this is, this is one man's dead, another man goes to prison and you never really get to hear what what this was why did this happen so yeah yeah and our initial news story the day after you know which was very very short just kind of like a crime brief was like one drug dealer killed another drug dealer you know and that wasn't exactly in fact that wasn't at all what went down so I also felt like you know as a newspaper we should set that record straight me and my wife first house that you know I wanted that I liked the spot I used to love my mornings waking up right there this is Anthony Roy you know what I'm saying? It just, I mean, everything couldn't have been more right. I did everything. Everything in that house got touched from the walls, the floors. I made that mine. I, I put everything I had in that house. I wasn't planning on going nowhere. I, it hurt me to have to leave that spot. I met a lot of people. I just, that's one thing I liked about Florida. It's how people just wave at you, don't even know you, they come up and speak to you. Thought that was all nice and fine, but the house where I lived at, when I first moved there, had a lot of drug drug dealers out there. It started before that she didn't have nowhere to sit. This is Irene Quarles. So when I got the furniture, that's when it really got bad. You know, people walked up and sat in my yard like it was a park. I had the gazebo, it's all real nice. I got the outdoor living room furniture and all that. People used to literally come up and just sit in my yard. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I had homeless people. Well, my wife used to wake up, excuse me, excuse me, wake them up. And they like, they don't come up, lay on my couch. Dope fiends, all that. People hiding drugs all in your trash can, all beside your trash can. Put a lock on my shed for, for, because of that. I wonder about putting no drugs up in my shed, so I had to put a lock on it. I found, we found a needle out there one time by the tree. We got rid of that because, you know, I got grandkids. And we, 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 they stomped that and threw it down in Wichita. 
You might find some weed sometimes. You can even find, you find money out there. I had to put a lock on my shed to keep people from going in and out of my shed. Sometimes I come outside, they unplug my freezer out of freezing the shed. My, they unplug my freezer in my shed, my food go bad because they want to plug a phone up. I would ask them, you know, hey, can't you go down the street with that? They move, no problem. But most of my friends, half the people that, that I end up being my friends weren't my friends. They were all just trying to have somewhere to go and sit there all day and do what they do. Oh my God, people used to come outside sometimes, people are cutting hair, cutting hair for money. Using my electric and my, my, my electric bill, two hundred something dollars, or three or something, three hundred something dollars, I got to pay out my part. I couldn't because they was taking over my, um, said like if I, like I want to go out there and enjoy my own furniture, I couldn't. You got to step over people, you got to tell them, look, I'm trying, oh, like I said, I have some company. I got to tell them, don't come in my yard today, I'm having company. Everybody said in the yard was drug dealers, selling pills, crack, um, what else? Whatever else they were selling, weed, and all, all those were drug dealers. He used to sit in my yard, try to take over my yard, try to take over my house, everything else. And we had a serious problem with that. So, how did what? What's the reaction been from people? I think a lot of people. Um, saw themselves in this situation. A lot of people have been saying, you know, what would I do if this was happened? Would, could this have happened in my neighborhood? Could this have happened in my yard? How would I have reacted if someone had been, I mean, the guy had been threatening him for like three years, coming by his house in the middle of the night saying, oh, I see you in the window there, you got nowhere to hide, you know, you need to find a place to hide, and showing him his gun and making threats. And, and I think a lot of people were just kind of trying to put themselves in their own situation and go, what could have he done differently? What should have he done differently? What would I have done? You know, they went to the police. The police arrested the guy. Police let, I mean, the, the jail would let the guy right back out. So initially I was really mad at the police, like they were, saying, like, why don't you do something about this, you know? And I still think there was a lot more the police could have done and would have responded differently in probably other neighborhoods. But um, we got the arrest reports, and the dude was arrested many times. He just kept coming back. Um, I know, uh, yeah, did you, you guys felt for this couple. I mean, you were, like you were saying, it's hard. You're going into a story where you're telling the story of somebody who's admittedly a murderer, but you, you walked away feeling sympathetic. It, it was hard not to feel his frustration. I mean, to me personally, the gun was there. If the gun hadn't been there, everything would have turned out really differently. Um, but you could feel his frustration. And they, the other thing that I thought was really telling, because I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., he was in D.C. all these years and never had a gun. He never felt threatened enough or like he had to protect his family with a firearm in Washington, D.C. And then he comes to Clearwater. And that was one of their motivations for moving down here. Somewhere safer, get away from all the killing. That's what they said. Uh. So yeah, talk. So you you talked about the limitation. You come in on a story that's it's already played out. You know the guys in jail. Uh, talk about the reporting process. So you you go away from the from the investigator and you start thinking. Okay, now I'm going to collect all this information. So what was that like? What did you have access to? Well, we started out just basically getting um, all of the the court files. So all the police reports, the 911 calls, the evidence photos, um, the initial interviews from the night of the murder. And then I went to both the defense attorney and the um, prosecutor and asked to get their depositions that they had done because they were about 
halfway through the depositions, and almost all of those were recorded. So it wasn't like just getting the words. We got to like see the guy, see the witnesses, and the other people explaining, you know, what had happened. And then we just made a list of all the people we wanted to talk to, like who who all was in the backyard that day. Um, who who could verify the story about whether they went to the police or not? <laughs> Truthfully, the hardest piece was to get the police to respond to all these requests of like they said they made complaints, they said they filed calls, they said that they had talked to you, and I want some proof of that and some evidence. And the police took like six months to reply. They just kept saying, "Oh, you know, yes, there was a problem area there. That's a known problem area to us, but selling drugs isn't a reason to murder somebody." Like they wouldn't even entertain the fact that that these guys had brought this issue up repeatedly and asked for help. Yeah. So there's, uh, I mean, there's obviously issues of race and class that we struggled with here because it's like there is this neighborhood that it's a very nice house. It's, you know, um, and the if you read the story, uh, Roy's mother had bought it as an investment property. Uh, but, you know, you can't help wondering, like, would police have responded differently in a different neighborhood? And, and but we struggled to like you know do we do we say that or do we you know and um trying to to see how people felt about that so talk about that challenge a little bit because i know you got you were you were looking for that to see if people raised that issue and a lot of them didn't really well and i think another thing we should point out is that that one of the reasons his mother bought that house was because it was right next to the police station like she wanted to be where there was a police presence and you would assume if there's a police substation that there's going to be police in that neighborhood but there weren't there was never anybody manning that substation there was never any patrols that we saw when we were out there so that seemed like as a community and my tax dollars are putting a police substation there why mm-hmm. you know like if the idea is to be more neighborhood policey where are the police in your neighborhood you know mm-hmm. so that that seemed like a, a, a problematic thing from the beginning too and and i'm white and the photographer was white and nobody ever brought up to white people white middle-aged ladies that this is some kind of a racial issue and you know some of my friends pointed out if you had been of that ethnicity, they might have talked to you differently, which is, I'm certain is true. You know, none of the people, none of the police, none of the private investigators, none of the lawyers, nobody was of color, except for the people that were involved in, in the, the crime itself. And so it, it made it hard to point that out without anybody else, especially because I wasn't writing it, especially because it was, I needed dialogue or, or other people to say it, and it just wasn't being brought up. And the police, um, when we finally got them on camera and talked to the chief, you know, they they didn't really think it was an issue of race or, or they were poo-pooing around that somehow and saying it was a class thing, you know, and that um, it was part of the problem was the revolving door of justice, that they would arrest these people. The neighbors would, would tell on these people. The neighbors would go, hey, help, this bad guy. And they go, okay, we'll do something about it. And then a week later, the guy's back out in the neighborhood. So then the people are scared because they know they've ratted them out. So, you know, I... I I didn't think the police did all they could by any means, but I felt a little bit that they were a little bit frustrated by this too. I, I thought it ended up hitting a lot of a lot of interesting themes about you know, uh, and, and especially in terms of like how we tend to cover crime, you know, where it is run and gun sometimes, and you're you write a very quick few graphs and you're gone, and then you never really come back to it. And like you said, did you initially you leave the impression that maybe this was sort of a a drug deal gone bad which is not what happened here and 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 like we talked about you know if it never goes to a to trial no one ever gets to hear this so i mean it is it just it felt 
good that we gave him a voice, no matter what happens. I mean, do you walk away feeling like that, too? Oh, yeah. I, th- I think, he, you know, he didn't ever think he was going to get off. He just wanted people to understand. And it was almost sad. Like, he cared so much about what people thought about his reputation. You know, he, he knew people were going to know him as a murderer now, but he wanted them to know why, you know. Um, which, it was kind of, that was kind of sad, because he, other than this, he probably wouldn't have gotten a chance, you know, to explain that. Is this one of the more unusual sort of story forms you've used over the years? Or can you think of things that you've done that were, um, I don't know, anything similar to this? I've, I've tried stories in dialogue before, and, and then they didn't get a whole lot of uh, response. And, and most of the things people would say is, oh, I missed your writing in that story. I wanted you to write that story. You know, this story, I thought, kind of wrote itself in a, a really a gift of a way because the people were so insightful and eloquent and um it was different defending like writing from a murderer's viewpoint too you know what i mean usually you when you cover a court case or a crime story you're not trying to like get inside the head of the the criminal so much so that felt kind of they're not usually talking right he was was very grateful someone was listening you know okay folks it's your turn if you have a question for lane about this story or any of her stories please email it to writelane at tampabay.com That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at TampaBay.com. Please join us uh, next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.